Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, we'll try it one more time. Good morning, everyone. I hate to be that guy, but I mean, this is, this is important stuff we're talking about, so I just got to make sure we're all, we're all awake. Uh, I'm really excited to be diving into our fall sermon series with you all, which is called Becoming Like Jesus. It's a study on the fruit of the Spirit, and last week we kind of took some time to go over what the fruit of the Spirit is, what it is not, and how we're supposed to live in accordance to that. And over the next nine weeks, we're going to be taking each of those fruit, one at a time, week by week, diving into them and looking at what they should look like in our lives. And so what I first want to do is just kind of give a recap or an overview of what we talked about last week so that we can make sure that we're all on the same page as we dive into this. So the fruit of the Spirit can best be described as indicators or marks of the Spirit at work within us. They are the the characteristics that should uh, be described as who we are as Christians. They're ultimately who Jesus is, and us being created like him and being formed into his image, they should be able to be described as us as well. They're characteristics that Jesus possesses and that we are to strive And that's a word that we don't typically like very much, but there's something that we're supposed to strive toward. But it's not just in our own mind. It's not something that that we do on our own, but rather it's the Spirit at work within us. On our own, we can't will ourselves into displaying the fruit of the Spirit. If we try as hard as we can on our own strength and our own might, it's not going to be that effective. But what we can do is we can yield to the work of the Spirit who's already at work in us. We can see what he's doing in our life. We can surrender more and more. We can ask him to do more and more in our lives. And that's how those things have their genesis within us. That's how fruit of the Spirit can thrive within us. Our call is to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, and to keep in step with the Spirit. Those three things are what Jesus would refer to as abiding. But abiding isn't just sitting there and doing nothing and we're like, okay, it's just me and God. I'm just going to sit here and soak and never do anything in my life. That's not what abiding is. Rather, it means focusing on God and yielding to him throughout our lives so that Christ may be fully formed within us. Our goal as Christians is to become like Jesus. It's not saying that we're going to be exactly like him and do everything the way that he would, but our goal at the end of the day should be people who look like Jesus, where we reflect his character, where we live as he lived in the world, where we're kind and we're loving and we're joyful, and all of the fruit that are described here are things that Jesus possesses and that should also be present within our lives. 
And so next nine weeks, we'll be diving into each of those characteristics. But today, we start with love. This is the first fruit of the Spirit that is given in Galatians 5. And love isn't first by chance. Paul isn't just writing something like, ah, oh, yeah, love sounds good. We'll put that one there. And then, you know, joy. No, love is first. Uh, very specifically. It's not by chance. One commentator noted that it's the fruit by which all other fruit matures. And I love that. Love is the primary thing within our lives. It's the primary working of the Spirit. And it's something important for us to remember that when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he didn't say obey. He said love. And obedience is implicit in that, but it's love first and foremost, he says that the greatest and the first command is to love the Lord your God with everything that you have. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. He said this love is the summary of all the law. And likewise, Paul in Colossians 3.14 says that above any other virtue, and that's some very big language, above any other virtue in our lives, we are to put on love because love is what binds everything else together in perfect unity. Love is the foundation and the hallmark of our Christian faith. It's what everything else is built upon. And so if you and I can understand and embody love, we will experience the transformed life that God desires for us. If we can understand the love that God has for us, the, the love that he has called us to have for others, then we will be transformed. But without a robust understanding of love, it's impossible for us to become like Jesus. It's impossible for us to live the life that he would have us live. In fact, love is one of the, the tests that Scripture lays out of an authentic faith in Jesus Christ. And 1 John is where we're going to be at today. And I encourage you this week to read all of 1 John. It's this wonderful letter of love where, where this is spelled out more and more. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But throughout the book, there are two major themes in 1 John. There's the theme of light and there's the theme of love. And John begins the letter by telling us that God is light, that in him there is no darkness at all. And because of that, we are to walk in the light. In other words, to, to live lives that are morally pleasing to God. He says that God is light, there is no darkness in him, and because of that, we should also live like that. We should be people that walk in the light, we should live morally pleasing lives to God. And then throughout the letter, John begins to transition from this theme of light to a theme of love. And he's telling us that God is love. Just like God was light, God is love. And because of that, we are to love. See, God is light. We are to be people that walk in the light. God is love. We are to be people that walk in love. In other words, we are to live lives that love like God loves. To John, living in the light and living in love are both required of Christians. Many times, I think, you and I are prone to think that it's okay if we live lives that are morally pleasing to God but fail to love. We, we raise up this idea of obedience, but then we kind of say that love, yeah, you know, that's a good thing that we're supposed to have, but it's a secondary thing. But that's not what Scripture communicates 
at all. In fact, Scripture communicates that a Christian who fails to love their neighbor is as much of an oxymoron as a Christian who lives in habitual, unrepentant sin. Both of them are at odds with the model of following after Jesus that Scripture presents. We are to be people that live in the light and to be people that live in love. It's a both and, not an either or. God wants us to live in the light and live in love. And this is a high calling. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. This is a high calling that Scripture has laid out for you and I, but it's one that we must embrace. It's one that we must strive towards. And so with all of that in mind, let's turn to our text today. We're going to start in 1 John 4, verses 7 through 8. And if you've got a highlighter or a pen, this is a great time to just underline or highlight every time love comes up in these two verses. John's writing and he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Now, John is the apostle of love for a reason. It's a theme not only throughout this letter and through his letters, but it's also all throughout his gospel as well. Love is the centerpiece of what John writes about. In fact, so much does he understand that, that what does John refer to himself as in his gospel? The disciple whom Jesus loved. Isn't that that kind of great that John so understood this idea of love. When referring to himself, he can't even refer to himself as his name. He's just like, I'm the one that Jesus loved. And that's just so embodied and embedded with him that it comes out. So in these two verses that we just read, love is used six times. He's using it six times throughout these two verses. He's using a form of the word love, once as an adjective, three times as a verb, and twice as a noun. And if you've got a keen eye, you're like, okay, one, two, three, four, five. It's like, Pastor, come on, you miscounted. There's only five up there. Yes, you're right. But if we go to the actual original language, there are six that are there. In the original language, the part that is translated in the NIV as dear friends actually is beloved. That's how John starts this. And so the first phrase is beloved, let us love. And that's the title of my sermon today, beloved, let us love. That's the hallmark of what John is getting at. And so I want to reread it with that translation in mind. Beloved, that's the adjective, let us love one another. For love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is and the six instances of love throughout these two verses are all forms of the root word agape, which is the, the noun or in God's perfect love for us. It's who God is at his core. It's the love that God possesses himself. Agape tas is the adjective or, or the beloved portion of it that's at the very beginning. It's who we're described as. You and I, believers in Christ Jesus, those that follow his way, are called beloved. 
It's who we are at our core. We are beloved by God. And then we get to agapeo, which is the verb, and it's how we are to love. To love as God loves. That's what John is spelling out in these two verses. And maybe some of you are like, okay, adjectives, verbs, nouns. Like, I did not pay attention in high school English. That's okay. I promise it's okay. In other words, it's who we're described as, it's who God is, and it's how we are to live our lives. All right, we can can get that, right? Okay, we're we're good there. And you're like, okay, it's all Greek to me still. It's English. We've translated it to English. It's all right. Here are the several great truths that are in these two verses. We are loved. Loved comes from God because God is love. Everyone who is born of God loves. And inversely, those who do not love do not know God. Here's the bottom line that I want us to get in these two verses. According to God, to love is to live and to live is to love. To love is to live, and to live is to love. And that may seem, it may seem overly simplistic. And I'm okay with that. And here's why I'm okay with such a simplistic statement with this idea of to live is to love, and to love is to live. I think in general, and I'm going to put several disclaimers in here, or in general, as Christians who live in America, who live in the 21st century. So that's my, you know, putting it down a couple of times. As Christians who live in America in the 21st century, I think we've lost a high view of love. I think we've lost a high view of what God has called us to embody, of what God has called us to live, and what God has for you and I. We've lost a high view of love. And I think sometimes we need some simple but radical statements to awaken us. To live is to love, and to love is to live. Here's why I think we've lost a high view of love. I think in a reaction to the culture around us, in reaction to the world at odds with God, we've lost that foundational truth about the Christian life, that we are to be people that are marked by love. And to be honest, I don't think it's an easy one for us to recover from. I think on our own, we're like, yeah, I I know I'm called to love, but do you see them? Like, Like, have you interacted with them? Like, have you seen what they post online? Yeah, we're called to love. We're called to embody the ethic of Jesus Christ. We need to be people who are marked by love. And I think the only way to recover what has been lost is by the Spirit at work within us. We can't get there on our own, but through the power of the Spirit at work within us, we can see this change. I think... For many of us, we'll, we'll listen to this sermon, we'll get through this, and, and I think for most of us, we'll have a case of the yeah buts. Yeah, we're called to love, but, right? But what about, what about this? Or, or what about that? Or, or what, about, what about this situation? And I think we've made it a lot more difficult than it should be. You and I, like I've said many times, we've been malformed 
by the world around us. We've been malformed by culture. We've been malformed by even some of the things within the church. And we need a reset. We need a reset in, in the way that Jesus has called us to live. And so what I want to urge you to do this morning is throw out the yebites. Just like throw them out and get rid of them. Just discard them all together and to consider the implications of what John is writing in this letter. To consider the implications of Scripture. Because if we consider the implications of Scripture here, it's going to radically alter how we live our lives. And so here's the summary so far for us. Just for, for those of us that, that need a little help, like myself, because I need to be reminded of this often. Here's the summary. God is love. We are loved by God. We are to love one another. Whoever doesn't love doesn't know God. It's, it's simple enough for us. It's really easy. It's spelled out there. But I think it still leaves us with the question of, well, what does that love look like? What does this radical love look like? How are we to grasp it? And I love that John moves on right after this, and he kind of spells it out for us in verses 9 and 10. He says, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Love is primarily and perfectly shown through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Love is primarily and perfectly shown in God the Father sending God the Son to awaken us by God the Spirit to live life that is truly life. That is love. It's the gospel that while we were still sinners— while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were separated from God. While we were dead in our trespasses. Where we were enemies to God. Where we were doing life on our own. Christ died for us. Sacrificing himself for us. While we were unable to even will ourselves to live correctly, while we had nothing to offer God, that is the very moment that God shows his love for us. While we are far, far, far away from him, he pours out his love upon us. And though we had nothing, though we stood condemned to death by our unrighteousness, God sent his Son to die for you, to die for me, so that through him we might live. This is the good news of the gospel. This is love. This is extravagant love. This is reckless love. This is foolish love by our human standards. That while we were God's enemies, he poured out his love upon us. It's a type of love that says, you don't deserve it, but I'm going to pour it out upon you anyway. 
Though you can give me nothing, I am going to give you everything. Though you are dead in your sins, I am going to give you new life. By our human standards, this type of love is nonsense. It's nonsensical, but it is the love of God. It is a grace-fueled love that changes absolutely everything. For you and me, our story begins and ends with God's love. It's a love that seeks our highest good, that not only forgives us, but, but transforms us and restores us, that calls us beloved, even though we haven't earned that title, even though we don't deserve that title. He calls us beloved. And this is the type of love that changes everything. And we must never forget that God has loved us despite us being unlovable, despite us being his enemies, despite us doing everything against him and living our own way, and sinning, and transgressing against him time, and time, and time again. But God has loved us despite that, despite our unrighteousness, despite living as though he were our enemy. Loving the unlovable, the sinner, the one who rejects God, the utterly depraved, is what God has done in his love through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus. That is the type of love that God has. It's what his love looks like, and because of that, it should inform how we are to love. Christopher Wright says it like this. He says, The cross is not just the means by which we are saved, but also the model for how we are to live. This is how God showed his love for us. This is the model. This is how we are to live as well. To love radically. To love those that don't deserve it. It's the message, beloved, let us love. And here's what John says right after spelling out God's love in 1 John 4.11. He says, dear friends, beloved, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Beloved, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Yeah, but, no, let's read it again. Beloved, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. But what about beloved, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. How did God love us? How did he show his love for us? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And how did Jesus, the epitome, the embodiment of love, how did he live his life? He dined with sinners. He ate with those who were unlovable. He ate with those that were enemies of God, that were far from God. And through a relationship marked by love, he invited them to have life that is truly life to see something different. Jesus didn't show his love to those who were worthy of it, to those who had earned it, to those who had done everything correctly. That's not what he did. He showed his love to the ones who didn't deserve it, 
his enemies, and that includes you and me. And the nature of that love, that kind of love, should now mark how we love. It's the epitome of how we are to live our lives. We are called to love, even, no, especially when, especially when we don't agree with people, especially when people get on our nerves especially when people live lives that we don't agree with, especially when people are are running from God, especially when they're doing everything contrary to the way that God has laid out, especially then we are to love them as Jesus has loved us. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. To say that we're just going to to love those that have already gotten it is foolishness. It's not what God has called for us to do. While we were enemies of God, Christ died for us. Yeah, but... Okay, I'll bite on this one. Loving others doesn't mean love is love and everything's okay and everything's permissible and I'm going to agree and accept everything. That's not at all what we're saying. That's not the message of Scripture. That's not the message of the New Testament. That's not the message of John. Remember, he's saying love and light. He's calling people to the standard of living lives fully alive in God. Loving others doesn't mean accepting their lifestyle or condoning their sin or excusing how they live. But loving others does mean being present in their lives, continuing to pursue them and showing them a more excellent way by how we live. By how we live. Showing them that we have understood the gospel that we have been marked by it, that we have been changed by it, and being close to them, just like Jesus was, dining with them and eating with them and showing them life that is truly life so that they can say that, why do you love me so much despite disagreeing with me? We shouldn't hide the things we disagree about or hide the places that that we believe that God is, is clear on, but we should love in spite of those things being present with them, caring for them, meeting practical needs so that they can look and say, why do you love me so radically? We can say, I was once an enemy of God. I once was dead in my trespasses. I once lived this life that was fully alive for myself alone, and yet God still loved me. And he poured himself out for me. He died for me. And now, by his grace alone, I have new life. I have obtained life that is truly life. And by his spirit, I'm working it out every day. I'm not perfect. I don't have it all put together all the time. But by his grace, he has shown me a more excellent way. Friends, I believe that it would rock the world around us if we were to live this way. If we were to put on an ethic of love, it would rock our our neighborhoods. It would rock our our city and this region and this country and this world if we were to put on an ethic of love. 
God hasn't commanded us to, to, to either stand in light or to stand in love. He's called us to do both. He's called us to purify ourselves, to live in the light as he is in the light, and to love radically as he has loved us. At the end of the day, love is our greatest apologetic. It's quite literally what has changed the world before. The reason that Christianity took over the world, the reason that you and I are sitting here 2,000 years later, is that the early church so embodied what it meant to love one another that it radically altered the course of history. Radically altered the course of history because they loved. They didn't have the yeah, but there. They just loved it was the Christians in the Roman world who championed caring for the poor. It was the Christians who championed taking in the orphan. It was the Christians who championed forgiving those who wronged them. It was the Christians who, who would, get, would stand there being martyred, being clubbed to death, being crucified, being boiled alive, being fed to the lions, saying, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. What would happen if you and I embraced that? And we get upset and fight back over such petty stuff. Has anyone fed you to the lions? Has anyone hung you as a human torch? Has anyone boiled you alive? And even if they did, so what? Let's live an ethic of love radically. I love this from Chris Wright. He says, when Christians love in practical, sacrificial, costly, barrier-dissolving ways, then the love of God, or rather the God who is love, can be seen. You want to see revival? Good. You want to see awakening? Even better. You want to see God turn this world upside down? So do I. But if our words aren't marked by an ethic of love in how we live, they are meaningless. We can pray and we can pray and we can pray, but if we go and live lives that aren't marked by love, then what are we doing? What are we doing if we don't understand the gospel so much that it changes everything about us? You ought to do this. Beloved, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The word ought is a, is a difficult one for us. Because I think often we hear it and say, yeah, we ought to do this, but you know it really doesn't matter. The word ought here literally means owe. You owe it. Because we've received love, we now must love. We owe it. We have received such a great love. Then John, in verse 12, takes it a step further with some really fun theology. Listen to this. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So we're going to talk theology for just a moment. I promise it won't be too scary. If it is, it'll be okay. And we'll jump into the implication here. It's, under, it's good for us to understand the theology before we get to the practical side of it. 
What John is saying when he said no one has ever seen God, he's not making a Christological statement about the nature of who Jesus is. He's not saying that Jesus is not God, but rather that God himself is invisible. That's the, the nature of who God is. He is invisible and that no one has ever seen God. Now, throughout the Old Testament, we have what are called theophanies. And, and I won't test you on this, I promise. But theophanies are, are basically God in disguise. So it's uh, Jacob wrestling the angel of the Lord and then him saying, I've seen the Lord. It's uh, Moses seeing the glory of the Lord, but not God himself. God is invisible himself. Now, God has also made himself known through his son, Jesus, who Paul calls the image of the invisible God in Colossians. Now, what, what is all of that meaning? So here, here's what John is ultimately trying to get at here. Why he's saying that uh, though God is invisible when we love, uh, God is able to be seen. This is what John is ultimately saying. It's quite radical. He's saying that in the same way that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, in the same way that Jesus is the image of the invisible God, that you can see God through Jesus, he's saying that we also are an image of the invisible God when we live in his love. In the same way that you can look at Jesus and see who God is, when people look at us when we live in love, they see who God is. We embody and embrace this ethic People see God in us. In other words, we are theophanies of God, but I don't expect you to say that. We are God in disguise. We're helping people to see the living God at work within us. Here's how John Stott says it. He says, The unseen God, who once revealed himself in his Son, now reveals himself in his people if and when they love one another. God's love is seen in their love because their love is his love imparted to them by his spirit. I, I love that last line. I'm just going to read again. God's love is seen in their love because their love is his love imparted to them by his spirit. It's not our own love. It's not whatever we want to define love as. It's God's love imparted to us by his spirit at work within us, helping other people to see God. In other words, it's all grace. It's all God working and living in us, producing a life that looks like Jesus. I think here's what that looks like practically. Let's just, let's just spell this out. Let's talk about it practically for just a moment. Has anyone ever heard the quote, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words? Anyone ever heard that? Okay. I used to really hate that quote. Like, I hated that quote, and I hated it until very recently, actually, because when I hear that, preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words, I'm like, what do you mean when necessary, use words? Like, it's necessary to use words to preach the gospel. And this quote, we ultimately don't know who, who originally said it. Um, it. It's sometimes attributed to St. Francis, sometimes attributed to Charles Spurgeon, sometimes just attributed to whoever you want. It, it's an unknown quote. And ultimately, I think it could have been said better. But I think it makes a really radical point that we often miss. Here's the point of the quote. It, it's saying that we are to embody the gospel. 
We are to, to live it out by how we live and relate to others at all times. In other words, the, the gospel should so shape who we are that it overflows into how we live, into every relationship, into every interaction, every single day. And in time, through that changed life that marks every single relationship and interaction in our life, in time, we are to communicate the message of the gospel with our words also. Not either or, both and. Live a life that's been transformed by the gospel, radically loved. Radically show people the love of God at work within us. And over time, communicate to them the truth of the gospel. Communicate to them why we're so marked by love. Why we've been so transformed. Why we love them so radically. Too often, and I'm guilty of this, we think of sharing the gospel as only our words. Without ever considering how we are living. Both are necessary. There's a missiologist uh, that I like, his name's Todd Corpy, and he recently shared that participating in Christ's mission in society looks less like pulling out a gospel track to leave for someone after dinner, and more like pulling up a chair for someone for dinner. Let me reread that again. Participating in Christ's mission, <clears throat> goodness, rewind, Participating in Christ's mission in society looks less like pulling out a gospel track to leave for someone after dinner and more like pulling up a chair for someone for dinner. Now, his, his point here isn't to underscore or to discount clear gospel communication. That's not what he's doing at all. But rather, he's saying that effective gospel communication can only happen through a lived gospel witness. In other words, if we're not living out the gospel, if we're not marking, if our lives aren't marked by the love of Jesus and living out the way that Jesus lived, then our communication of the gospel is going to fall on its face. Now, here, let me put this in practical terms using the example that he uses for us. So say you're out to dinner and you're eating at one of our, our fine North Country establishments and you're there and you've been grumpy the whole time. You've been angry the whole time, like you're visibly upset with the people that you're eating with. You've complained about everything the waitress has done. You've sent back like three separate things of food, and then you leave like a $3 tip on like a $45 meal. And then you put the little gospel track there. Like, do we really think that's going to be effective? Like, maybe by the grace of God working in spite of all that, it can be effective. I'm not going to discount that at all. But let's, let's flip the script for a second. What happens if we're out to dinner, and we're investing in the waitress, and we're asking about herself, and we're complimenting her, and we're saying, you're doing such a great job, even if she's not doing a great job? What if we embody grace, and we embody love, and we speak life and not death? What if she can see love in us through how we're interacting with people at the table, and then we just bless her socks off with a great tip at the end? And then we communicate the gospel, whether it's a track or, or something else. Which one of those two are more effective? It's obviously the second one. 
If we want to see the world transformed, we need to live transformed lives. We need to be people who have been transformed and live it out in every interaction that we have. Yeah, but they they really messed up the food, Pastor. Yeah, but the service was really bad and I had to wait for 37 minutes to get a taco. Okay? You'll be okay. It's fine. Love. They don't deserve it. Neither did you. Neither did you. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We're called to love people radically, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love them as God has loved us at our worst. I want to jump ahead and read 1 John 4, 19-21. Again, I encourage you to read all of 1 John this week. This is how John ends this chapter. He says, We love because he first loved us. And I listen to the language he has here. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. Forever who does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. That's the practical application of this message. Love one another. Love others. Love them radically. Don't be someone who says, I have been loved by God, and then live lives that are anything but marked by love. Let's be people who prove by our actions that that God is at work within us, that we have received his grace, that we have received his love. Let me read 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7, so we can see what that looks like. You guys didn't think we were going to get a sermon on love without going to 1 Corinthians 13, right? Let's read this. And this is fun because this is sandwiched in between two chapters on the gifts of the Spirit. And Paul's like, this is the one that matters most. Like, it doesn't matter if you prophesy or speak in tongues or can work miracles. All that is fooey if you aren't marked by love. Listen to what he says. He says, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy It does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. I don't know about you guys, but I need to work on that. One thing that we can do is we can replace that word love with our name. Are we embodying love? Kevin is patient. Kevin is kind. Kevin does not envy. Kevin does not boast. Kevin is not proud. Kevin does not dishonor others. He is not self-seeking. He is not easily angered. He keeps no record of wrongs. Man, I got some work to do. The questions that we should be asking ourselves are, who are we not loving? 
Who are we not doing these things? Who are we not being patient with? Who are we not being kind to? Who are we envying? Who are we being prideful toward? Who are we dishonoring? Who are we being angered by? Who are we speaking bad about and not forgiving faults? And as we ask ourselves those questions, there's probably several people that come to mind. If there's not, ask them again. Because none of us do this perfectly. And often, here's the thing, we try and get ourselves off the hook. Well, I love everyone, I just don't like some people. Friends, if we're not doing the things that love is described as, here in 1 Corinthians 13, then we don't just not like people, we don't love them. Let's not play word games. Let's not give ourselves excuses. Let's hold ourselves to the standard that God has called us to live. Let's love like he loves. I think it's important, and I want to underscore this again, underline it again. We can't do this perfectly on our own. You're not going to be able to will yourself into doing this. You need the Spirit at work within you. It's His love that's marked us. It's His love that transforms us. It's His love that sustains us. We desperately need the Spirit at work within us to, be, to, to have lives that are marked by the fruit of the Spirit. In our flesh, we're not going to love everyone as we should. That's not an excuse, it's a fact. We're not going to love everyone as we should. But as we yield to the Spirit, as we come to the Lord and say, I can't do this, I fail often, will you please work within me? As we do that, as we yield to Him, as we understand more and more the love that God has for us and the love that He's called us to exhibit, as we do that, we will be transformed more and more into someone who looks like Jesus. Love is not optional for us. It's not optional for us as Christians. It should be something that we seek. We should seek to be people that are marked by love. It should be our ethic. It should be our highest call. And it should be something that we pray for daily. God, help me to be someone who reflects your love. By the power of the Spirit, make me into something that I'm not. Help me to, to love the ones I disagree with. Help me to, to love the unlovable, the one who gets on my nerves. Help me to, to love the one that I know I should love, but I really don't want to love. We should be people who pray that daily. Because we need His grace daily. So one line for us. Beloved, let us love. That's it. Beloved, let us love. You are radically loved by God. Not because of what you can do for him, not because of what you've done for him, because of his great love. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Because of that, let us love. Please stand with me as we pray. Father, your love is extravagant. 
more than we deserve. And we don't deserve it at all. We've sinned against you. We've transgressed time and time and time again. We've lived for ourselves. Despite all of that, you have poured out your love upon us through Jesus. God, I pray today that you would help us to be people that understand that love just a little bit. That you would begin to help us to understand how deep and wide your love is for us. That you love us with an unfailing love. And I pray that you would help us to be people that are marked by love. People that live every day with a revelation that I've been forgiven by God. I've been made new. I don't deserve it. I didn't earn it, but I've been made new. God, help us to live every day with that revelation. I pray that you would create fruit within us. That our flesh would be crucified, that we'd be alive by the Spirit. That we would be people who love like you loved us. It's in Christ's name that I pray. Amen. As we prepare our hearts for communion, I want you to reflect on that love that God has for us. That mighty, undeserved reckless, extravagant love. Because it's for you. Every single one of you. His love is for you. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, that love sounds too good to be true. Friends, it's not. It's for you. He poured it out for you. Surrender to him today. Come to him and say, God, I surrender. Thank you for loving me. I put everything at your feet. Or maybe you're here and you're like, Pastor, that's a really high view of love you've called us to. I'm not living it. I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. Encouraging you to lay it down today to come to the foot of the cross and say, God, I haven't done this. I have failed. Please forgive me. Pour out your spirit upon me and work within me. Create love in me.